Amen. Thank you so much. Uh, They have been a blessing to me throughout this time of COVID. And I don't like hearing myself preach twice uh, on a Sunday, but they have been having to listen to me preach twice on Sunday for about the last six months. And so for the next three to four weeks, uh, they are going to take a break, a much-needed break and rest. But I appreciate your service to the Lord and serving Christ while you serve us. And so uh, we're grateful for you. Uh, honestly, when I get to hear you sing an anthem on Sunday mornings, that's kind of like my sermon I get to hear. And so I want to thank you for your service to the Lord and certainly to me. Well, this morning we begin a new sermon series. Uh, we are beginning a sermon series to the Gospel of Luke. So we're actually going to be in Luke for the remainder of the year. Will we be in it next year? I don't know. I haven't prayed about that yet, but we're actually going to be in Gospel of Luke from now through December. Uh, we're going to start Gospel of Luke. We'll skip the infancy narratives. We'll come back to those in Advent. But this is where we're going to be for the remainder of the year. Uh, before I came to Bartow ARP Church, I took a Doctor of Ministry class at Erskine uh, Theological Seminary in Due West, South Carolina. I was taking a class by one of the professors there, uh, Dr. R.J. Gore. And Dr. Gore said he, he had recently done a survey of ministers in the ARP denomination about the current books that they were preaching through at that time. And here's what he discovered as he interviewed them about the current sermon series they were preaching the, and the previous sermon series they had preached, that very few ministers in the ARP denomination were preaching through the Gospels. Don't you find that shocking? Do you know where most ARP ministers like to camp when they preach? The Apostle Paul. Now, all the scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's no doubt about it. But the reason why we like to preach Paul is because we like like the doctrine there. But the gospels give us the foundation for all that doctrine. So it seemed best to me as we just came through a sermon series on TULIP, the five points of Calvinism, and we now balance that out with some preaching and teaching and learning of the gospel. I love the system of truth that's five points of Calvinism. I'm, I'm not ashamed of what the, the scriptures teach. I'm not ashamed about what we believe. But we need to be reminded of the fact that when we, we ultimately become a Christian, what we're accepting is not necessarily a philosophy or a system, but we are accepting a person named Jesus Christ, a real person who's fully God and fully man, and his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension had eternal significance. So this morning we are going to begin our study of Luke's gospel um, by taking a look at the first four verses of Luke's gospel together this morning. If you don't have a Bible, those Those passages of Scripture are printed in your bulletin this morning. So let's go to God's Word together this morning. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, 
having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your Son is the way, the truth, and the life. May your Holy Spirit come with power this morning. Open our eyes that we might see the way to you. Help us to see he is the only way to you. Open our eyes to see the truth. Help us to see that this truth is reliable, certain. I pray that we might receive eternal life this day as well. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the most beautiful book that has ever been written. That's what Renan said about the Gospel of Luke, that it is the most beautiful book that has ever been written. If you enjoy good literature, then the Gospel of Luke is for you. I was reminded of just how highbrow of Greek Luke writes with this week. Uh, Verses 1 through 4 in Luke chapter 1 are actually only one sentence in the original Greek. That's right, I was going, I, 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 as I was trying to translate it this week. One sentence. He's demonstrating just how eloquently he can write. If you enjoyed literature, this book is for you. If you wrestle with doubts about Christianity, if you have some doubts in your faith right now, or maybe you're even a skeptic about religion altogether, then this book is for you. This book is composed and compiled in a way that is fact upon fact, eyewitness account upon eyewitness account. And so this book is for a skeptic like me and a skeptic like you. If you're young in the faith, And you're just beginning to understand what you believe and you're trying to discern and chew upon truths that will give you encouragement about why you should believe what you believe, then this book is for you. Or if you're a silver saint, a saint that's been walking with the Lord for quite a while, it's always good to be reminded of what we believe and why we believe it. And so my friend, this book also is for you. Before we head into the two points I want to focus in upon this morning, I want you to know that the big idea of today's message is this, is that when it comes to the Christian faith, we can exchange absurdity for certainty. There are a lot of people in the world today that think Christians are like dinosaurs. 
They're convinced that if we accept the Bible, that we must have checked our brain at the door in order to accept the truths that are taught here. Nothing can be further from the truth. What we have here in the Gospels, particularly in the the Gospel of Luke, is one credible evidence after another stacked upon one another that gives us confidence that what we believe is accurate, it's true, it's reliable. And what is so encouraging about the Gospel of Luke is this, is is that Luke is just like me and Luke is just like you. You know what that means? Luke didn't walk beside Jesus. Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus' life or teaching or even his death, burial, resurrection. Rather, Luke came to the faith in Christ later on as he heard eyewitness accounts about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's just like me and you. And so he's just like me and you. He's trying to gain credibility and confidence that what he believes is true and accurate. So who was Luke? Luke was a physician. He was a highly educated man. We learn in Colossians chapter 4 verse 14 that the apostle Paul refers to Luke as the beloved physician. I found this interesting that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 18... The Apostle Paul describes someone that can preach the gospel beautifully. And I always assumed that that was Barnabas, since he was the great encourager. I assumed that perhaps that was Silas, since Silas would have been on that missionary journey with the Apostle Paul at that time. What I learned this week is that there are a lot of scholars that are convinced that when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 18, that there is one that he doesn't mention his name, that's a beautiful preacher of the gospel, Many scholars believe that person is actually Luke. See, Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul's on his second and third missionary journey. In fact, if you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, you will see that the Apostle Paul, on the eve of his death, tells Timothy, there's only one person that hasn't abandoned me. Only Luke is with me. That is the Luke that pins these words that we have read this morning. Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. And I found this interesting as well this week. It's not 100% certain, but it is food for thought. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, right after verse 11 and verse 13, right after the Apostle Paul says that only Luke is with me, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, also bring with you my cloak, my books, and above all, the parchments. It's not, but there are some scholars that are led to believe that what the Apostle Paul was mentioning in the books and the parchments was this, that perhaps the Apostle Paul and Luke himself were working together on writing the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts together. Now, what leads scholars to believe that? Well, it's been known throughout church tradition that Mark's gospel is, contains the Apostle Peter's preaching of the gospel. But Irenaeus and Origen said that they believed, and it was all uh, believed throughout church tradition that was contained in the gospel of Luke was the Apostle Paul's preaching of the gospel. 
Not 100% foolproof, but it's certainly fascinating to consider. That perhaps what we have before us in Luke-Acts would have been not only Luke's work, but perhaps Luke's work alongside the Apostle Paul in writing the gospel according to Luke. So how can we know that we can exchange absurdity for certainty this morning? Well, the first reason is that we want to see the purpose of Luke's gospel this morning. We see the purpose of it in verse 4. Luke writes to... The most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, we believe, is a real man. Uh, His name means lover of God. And that phrase, most excellent, is used in the book of Acts several times to refer to high-ranking government officials in the Roman Empire. And so most scholars are led to believe that Theophilus would have been a high-ranking Roman official of whom Luke has now corresponded with over the last several years. And Luke is writing this gospel to give him certainty that what he believes is true. Remember I said that this gospel is written in highbrow Greek. And that verses 1 through 4 are only one sentence in the original language. Well, that word for certainty in the Greek is saved until the end of the sentence in the original Greek. Why is that the case? For emphasis. Luke held that word certainty to the end to give a solemn, serious emphasis to say, Theophilus, there's one main purpose I have in writing to you. I want you to have certainty that what you believe is true. Reminds me of a story I was told that it's a true story about a young man that had to go see a psychiatrist. The young man was convinced that he was dead, although he was walking and talking and eating and drinking and sleeping. So as, as you can imagine, his parents got very concerned about him, and so they sent him to a psychiatrist. And when the psychiatrist saw him, he said, young man, how can I help you? And he said, well, I'm convinced that I'm dead. My parents don't believe me. And so the psychiatrist had a long discussion with this young man. And so he, he told the young man, if you're dead, then you would have been sent to the funeral director. And he would have drained your body of all of its blood. And, and, and you wouldn't have blood gushing from your body when you bleed. He said this, the psychiatrist told him, dead men don't bleed. And so the psychiatrist sent the young man home with several resources, several books, several articles that he wanted him to read. And after several months of discussing and several months of reading and researching, finally the psychiatrist had the young man come before him and he asked the young man, are you convinced now that dead men bleed? And he said, no, sir, I'm I'm fully persuaded now that dead men do not bleed. Well, as you can imagine, the psychiatrist was encouraged and thought, okay, finally, I've accomplished my job. So the psychiatrist took out a needle, it was clean, and he stabbed the young man in the arm. And immediately the young man's arm began bleeding. And the psychiatrist looked at the young man and said, what do you have to say about that? And the young man said, huh, I guess I bleed. (laughs) You know, unfortunately, that's the way a lot of people are when they come to the Bible. 
They've read the evidence. They've read the proof. And yet they walk away from the evidence still unconvinced. This is my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that if you have doubts in your faith, you will walk away from Luke's gospel convinced. Convinced not only about what you're to believe, but why you are to believe it. If you are walking with Christ, my prayer for you is that you would walk away from our study of Luke's gospel with your faith strengthened. With a strengthened resolve of certainty. That's why Luke wrote this book. It was with a specific purpose in mind that you would have certainty. Think about this. That's why the Holy Spirit inspired him to write so that you would walk away from this book with certainty. Friends, God has a sense of humor. Occasionally I get dinged for my preaching because I've had people say, you laugh too much in the pulpit. Well, this book contains the word joy more than any other book in the New Testament. Christians should be joyful. But God has a sense of humor, and for this reason, God called me to be a preacher when he knows in my heart I'm a skeptic. I'm a doubting Thomas. And so isn't it ironic that God would use a doubting Thomas to teach on a book that would strengthen all of our faith and help us walk away with certainty. Here's what's encouraging to me. In the gospel account about the doubting Thomas, do you know Jesus really doesn't scold Thomas quite as harshly as most of us are led to believe? Thomas had his doubts. But Jesus responds to Thomas and says this, Hey, Thomas, reach out and touch my hands and my feet. See where I've been crucified and that I'm alive and well. But do you know what Jesus says after that? Thomas, you believe because you have seen Blessed are those who have not seen and yet still have believed. Do you know why Jesus said that? Jesus said that not only to encourage Thomas, but Jesus said that for you and me. Jesus said that for you and me and for someone like Luke who didn't have the privilege of walking alongside Jesus while he was teaching and while he was healing and while he was predicting his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus gave us these words so that we too might have our faith strengthened and that we would have certainty about what we believe. That's the first reason we want to study the gospel of Luke is that we could see the purpose of this book is to give us certainty about our faith. But there's a second, final reason we want to study this book is that we can see the proof. Not only see the purpose, but also see the proof of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what the, what, uh, I always want to say what the Apostle Paul says. 
I got to get that out of my head. What Luke says. Look at, look at what Luke says in, in verse 1. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been co- accomplished among us. You see, Luke is admitting the fact that many others have written accounts of the life of Jesus. He's referring probably to Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel was probably written in the early 50s, if not late 40s AD. We believe that Luke's gospel was written around 63 AD. And so he's referring to Mark. And he's not, he's not scolding Mark for doing a bad job. But he's just saying many have undertaken to, to write a narrative of the life of Jesus Christ. And as you study the gospels, what you learn is that the gospels are a specific type of literature in the history of the world. They are a narrative. They are a biography about the life of Jesus, but not about every nook and cranny of Jesus' life, but about significant events in Jesus' life. And Luke says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. What is Luke admitting? He's saying, okay, guys, the reason that we've come to believe in Christ is because we have received the eyewitness accounts And that's what I've done. Luke has gone through painstaking, thorough research. Luke has traveled with the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. He's been to Jerusalem. He's interviewed the Apostle Peter. He's he's interviewed James, who was the the half-brother of Jesus. Luke had stayed with Philip. At his house. And he's had all of these opportunities to gain eyewitness account story after eyewitness account story and records of what Jesus said and did. And so, verse 3 he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus. And that is what Luke's gospel is. It is an orderly account of Jesus' life. So much so that when usually people are writing a, a harmony of the gospels or, or talking, uh, trying to mesh Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospels together like a casserole, they usually use Luke's gospel as kind of the broad historical sketch of what happened from Jesus' birth, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. In fact, this week as I was reading John Calvin's commentary on Luke, what what I was reminded of is the fact that when John Calvin wrote commentaries on Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, he wrote a harmony of the gospels, which means this, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel have a lot of similarities. And when you turn to the first page of John Calvin's commentaries on Matthew, Mark, and Luke, do you know what the first passage is that he covers? It's Luke 1. Verses 1 through 4. Because Luke's gospel is the only gospel that has a preface like this. That says, okay, I'm giving you eyewitness account after eyewitness account of what I've researched. And what I want you to know is what you have before you is not just some philosophical system but it's historical fact. Here's my concern about those of us that grow up in church 
and know all the stories of the Bible. we got to be reminded that they're true stories. That these are things, these are real people with real events that happen on the real space-time continuum where we live. And these events that happen carried redemptive significance. Why? Not because of the emphasis that, that Christians placed upon them. If you, if you read, read some liberal scholars or if you read some philosophers, they'll say, well, you know, Christians put a lot of emphasis on this. And they put a lot of meaning what happened here in Jesus' life. That isn't what makes something meaningful. If I go back to the seventh grade, I remember a time when a girl dropped her ink pen and she picked it up and our eyes made contact. I remember thinking, oh, she likes me. I put meaning into that action. But you know what I discovered at recess or at PE that day? That was not what that action meant. It meant I picked up my ink pen and I happened to, to make eye contact with you, dummy. That's what it meant. Well, if you read some liberal scholars, if you read some uh, liberal theologians, they'll say, well, you know, these, some of these things happen, and then Christians put a great deal of emphasis on them. They put meaning and significance on them. That isn't what happened. These things happen in the real space-time continuum where we live, and what makes them carry redemptive significance is because of the emphasis God places upon them. See the difference? What matters isn't what you and I believe about what happened. Ultimately, what matters is what God says happened and why it was significant. That's why it's called redemptive history. These things happen within real history and from God's vantage point. They carried redemptive significance for you and me. Why? Because God placed that value upon them. How many of you, by show of hands, have ever heard of the man by the name of Sir William Ramsey? Anybody? Okay. Sir William Ramsey was a skeptic. He was a Scottish archaeologist. He was a New Testament scholar believe it or not, who did not believe in the historical reliability of the Gospels. Kind of interesting, right? Well, why would you even go into the profession of being a New Testament scholar that doesn't believe in the, in the validity of the New Testament? Yet, that's what he did. That's kind of dumb, too, because if you check what New Testament scholars make, I mean, the amount of education he had, he could have spent uh, that money on a much better education and made a lot more money. But in God's providence... God had Sir William Ramsey go on to become an archaeologist and a New Testament scholar, even though he didn't believe the Bible. But do you know what happened? Over the course of Sir William Ramsey's life, as he studied archaeology, and notice how the Bible was very reliable about places and events that happened there, particularly as he studied Luke's account of Jesus' life. The Holy Spirit moved in Sir William Ramsey. And he came to a genuine saving knowledge 
of Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the proof in this gospel. Because of the proof in this book that these aren't fables, these aren't fairy tales, these are real, live, historical people that lived in real historical places, and these were real historical events. And so what happened in Sir William Ramsey's life is he, he exchanged absurdity for certainty. Friends, this is my prayer for you. That as a Christian, you would not only know what you believe, but why you believe it. As we go through the Gospel of Luke, you're going to be reminded of what you are to believe about Jesus. But I also want you to, to realize why you should believe it. Many of you have had the privilege of being raised in a Christian home where your mommy and daddy taught you about Jesus. I praise God and I thank God for that privilege you've had. Some of you not only had the privilege of having a mommy and daddy teach you about Jesus, but you've had the privilege of having a grandma and a grandpa love Jesus and teach you about Jesus. And I'm happy for you as well. But friends, when you witness to someone who's a skeptic and they ask you, why? Tanner, why do you believe that? I have found over the years that I need more of a convincing argument than to say, well, my grandma used to say. Grandma might be an authoritative figure in my life, and she is still to this day. But I need to have more of a convincing argument and proof than that. And so where you can begin with your friend is in this passage. Luke 1, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And say, so just like me and just like you, Luke was not an eyewitness of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. But he behaved like an investigative journalist. And he went back to those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, the teaching, death, and resurrection. And he got eyewitness account, eyewitness account, after eyewitness account. And he wrote it as a history of Jesus' life. Friends, J.C. Rawls says this, Christianity is a religion built on facts. Let us never lose sight of this. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're real. 
And we thank you that you use real people to spread the news about you. Thank you that those real people not only used real words, but they used real ink and real parchment to write down your gospel. Father, help us to learn that the Bible is the most picked over book in the world for two reasons. Skeptics and atheists want to try to disprove it, and so they nitpick it. And Christians accept this book as the Word of God, what it is. And so since we value it so much, we examine it thoroughly, every nook and cranny of it. Help us as a church to walk away from our study of Luke's gospel with our faith strengthened. Our faith in you more certain as Luke writes. And may we make it our purpose and our aim to spread this news. So that others might know the reason for the hope that we have. It's in Jesus name we pray. And all of God's people agreed saying. As we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper this morning, let's stand and sing together Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd, verses 1 and 4 together this morning. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We know that was Jesus' last supper with his disciples. But why was he having that last supper with his disciples? Because they were celebrating the Passover together. The Passover that we learn about in the book of Exodus. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was telling his disciples, just as there was a lamb that was sacrificed and that blood was put over the threshold of the doors protect God's people from the death angel. I have come as the Lamb of God. And my blood will be shed on your behalf that my blood might be spread over the threshold of your heart 
so that on judgment day, you will not suffer spiritual death and damnation. And so Jesus was saying, I'm the Lamb of God that has come. Friends, we come to this table as guests of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not Tanner's table. This is not the table of the Bartow ARP Church. This is the table of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so who is welcome here? Anyone that has admitted that they are a sinner, believe in their heart that Jesus has died on the cross for their sins, and have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. This table is not for perfect people. Rather, this table is for those that have put their trust and their faith in a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. So I'll say this. If you have doubts today, this table is for you. If you're struggling in your faith, in your walk with Christ, this table is for you. However, if you've never come to trust in Christ, I'm going to ask that you would allow the elements to not be taken today. Or, if you find yourself under church discipline, either by this church or another church, that you would not partake today. Rather, instead, use this time as a time for you to confess your sins to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this table. It is a sign and seal of your covenant of grace. It symbolizes who Jesus is and what he accomplished on our behalf. And yet it's a seal that the Holy Spirit makes it effective in our hearts. It's not a meaningless ritual. It's a meaningful ritual meaningful celebration that your Holy Spirit uses to minister to our hearts and to our faith. We pray that you would bless these elements so that we might be reminded today that our Savior is real, that he really lived, he really died, he really resurrected, and he's really coming again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning our elders placed the elements before you in the pew. You can take them. This is part of our serving the Lord's Supper during this time of COVID. You'll notice in the top there is a clear piece of cellophane you can pull back. And access the wafer. As we'll take the elements together this morning. This thin wafer is a reminder of the incarnation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What happened in the manger on that Christmas day was that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son who existed throughout eternity, took on flesh in that moment. That he might be our second Adam, our representative, and live and die in our place. 
take this wafer being reminded that Christ's body was broken for you.